says he's a Christian? How do we how do we know that they're the real deal? And how do we go about doing that? And that's one of the things we want to look at uh, this morning. Well, it's good to be back with you. Uh, uh, of course, Steve and Belinda and Judy and I were in Mexico last week, and uh, I think uh, I saw a quick message from Brother Steve telling us to be careful around the sharks. He did not know that when we read that, we'd all four been in the ocean with sharks already. And uh, these were whale sharks, though, and they were... They only eat plankton, so not quite as dangerous as the bull sharks from before, but a whole lot bigger. Uh, one swam up next to the boat, and I've got video of it. It was longer than the boat. And um, they just move their tails so gracefully and slow, and yet uh, even graceful and slow, there's no way you can keep up with these fish, and you swim out as quick as you can. It's funny to have a boat captain yelling at you, swim to the shark, swim to the shark. Everybody else says swim away from the shark. He swim to the shark, and... And, uh, but one pose for Steve and Belinda and just got perfectly straight up and down. I got to swim around all sides of them a couple of times. And so we, we had a good time, but it was distressing that after we got there, we found out that uh, a pastor's wife was going to uh, in the hospital. And uh, turned out she had blockage in 90% in her what they call the widowmaker artery because the first symptom of that artery being clogged usually is death. And they caught it. A nick in time and got a couple stints in, got a lot better blood flow to her heart, but it still looks like uh, she was having some chest pains yesterday. It looks like she's going to have to have a valve replaced. So there's a place in Plano where they can do that without having to crack open your chest. And so we're hoping she'll have that procedure soon, but please keep Barbara in your prayers. So let's look at James, and, and uh, there's been a lot of confusion over the book of James, and, and one of those people that was very confused about it was Martin Luther. But I just want to remind us where we are in our study of the book of James. We've been all the way through chapter 1, and we've just gotten into chapter 2. In the first part of chapter 2, he was talking about basically favoritism. Uh, today, we've got a lot of different kinds of favoritism. You can favor the rich over the poor. You can favor a white person over a black person. You can favor uh, one nationality over another or one language over another or one side of the tracks over another. And yet, uh, James makes it clear that favoritism really has no part in Christianity. Uh, Jesus died for all. We all came from a common ancestry because God created uh, man. And uh, really, this idea of racism is, is an evolutionary concept. It's not a a concept that God created. But the thing is, is that God's mercy is available to all men, and so if we show favoritism or racism toward one particular group of people, uh, that's not consistent with the mercy of God. Thank you, sweetheart. Um, now, James is going to, to go into another example, so we remember for a moment, he's given the example in the first part of chapter 2 of a rich man comes in and he's asked to sit up front and given the prominent seat and a poor person comes and they, they make him sit on the floor, maybe even be a footstool for one of the rich people and uh, basically doesn't get treated as well and James says this kind of behavior should never, should never happen. And now he's going to say that not only can... Uh, favoritism not coexist uh, with saving faith, but he's going to say saving faith cannot exist without manifesting itself in godly works. James is not saying, by the way, that we have to work or accomplish good things in order to go to heaven. He's saying that if we have a true saving faith, it changes our character so that we'll do good works. But he's talking about a very specific kind of good works, as we'll see in a minute. And I think he's combating some people that maybe were justifying uh, their behaviors or justifying uh, their attitudes, that uh, maybe they, God was prompting them that they needed to go do something and they weren't doing it. And they would say, well, 
I'm a furniture maker. I don't need to actually make furniture. Or they were saying, well, I'm a Christian because, you know, my family's a Christian. And they didn't actually have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that had, had changed their lives. And so he's saying, listen, you need to be showing love, especially toward those with whom you're not socially compatible or you're not showing the love of Christ. So let's, let's read this passage together. And if you can, would you stand in honor of God's word? And we're actually going to go through verse 22, but I, I think we're just going to read uh, these verses here. What is the benefit, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? That faith is not able to save him, is it? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food for the day, one of you should say to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat. Um, I'm sorry, I lost my place there. Go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but does not give them what is necessary for the body. What is the benefit? Thus also faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have work. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But do you want to know, a foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Or some translations say, faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts now to see the balance between James and Paul and between the truths revealed here and uh, those revealed in Paul's epistles and help us to reconcile them and to understand how important it is that our faith have evidence that it is authentic. Father, open us to your word now and use us for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you. So there's a lot of confusion. One of the people who got really confused over the book of James was Martin Luther. And you may remember Luther who on October 31st of, I think it was 1537, I may have the year wrong, uh, in, in the, on a church in Wartburg, Germany, he nailed his 95 theses to the door. Uh, he had been a Roman Catholic priest and, and a monk, and he essentially departed from the Roman Catholic Church in a few ways. Namely, is that he had read Romans 2.14, and he had looked up the scripture. It was taken from in the book of Habakkuk, where it says, The just shall live by faith. And he realized that you couldn't buy indulgences to earn your way out of purgatory and you could not attend enough masses or do enough other things to look good enough in God's eyes to let you into heaven. But you simply had to receive the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you receive him as your Lord and Savior and then you can be forgiven. And then you can be sure that you will spend eternity with Jesus Christ. And Martin Luther, when he was studying... I got to the book of James, and he said James didn't belong in the scriptural canon. It shouldn't even be in our Bibles, he said. And he said because it contradicted the teaching of the Apostle Paul, because Paul clearly says that salvation is not by works. Uh, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's not by works. For by grace you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he, he said, well, James is saying that salvation is by works. And, and you'll notice in James 2.23, uh, James actually agrees with Paul. I don't know why Martin Luther didn't see this verse. In James 2.23 it says, And the scripture was fulfilled that said, And Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him or credited to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So according to James, who's quoting an Old Testament scripture, what did Abraham have to do to be saved? He believed on God. 
He, he, he believed in Jehovah. He put his faith in Jehovah. That's how all he did, and it was counted to him for righteousness. He didn't have to do anything. Uh, James clearly states that Abraham simply believed and trusted in Jehovah. God gave him righteousness. So why was Abraham made righteousness? Because he received God's grace through an act of faith. But there is another verse that Martin Luther did read that really caused him to get confused. And it was the two verses immediately preceding the verse we just read. It says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac upon the altar? You see, that faith was working perfect together with his works, and by the works, the faith was perfected. So what's he saying? Um, He basically says that when God told Abraham, you have to offer up your only son Isaac on an altar. And you remember the story, Abraham takes Isaac up to the top of the mountain. Isaac is carrying the wood. They get up there, they, they build the altar, and Isaac says, Daddy, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham replied, Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. Now, Mount Moriah, interestingly enough, one of the hills on Mount Moriah is Calgary, or Cal, excuse me, Calvary. And uh, uh, Jesus actually said about Abraham, he says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Abraham had a vision, basically, that Jesus was going to die on the mountain that same day, that God the Father would give up God the Son for us. And so he is yielding up his son. He doesn't understand why. The book of Hebrews tells us that as Abraham was ready to kill his own son on the altar, that he tr- God had promised him that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Isaac, his descendant. And that the, his descendants would be more than the number of the sands of the sea. And so he was convinced that God would raise up Isaac again. Uh, he, was, he didn't think for a moment that he killed Isaac and he'd never see Isaac again. He, he believed so strongly that God would keep his previous promise that he believed God, God would raise Isaac up again from the dead. And of course you know the story. He's about to slay Isaac. The angel stops his hand. He provides a ram as the sacrifice that's caught in the thicket. And uh, so God, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord did provide himself a sacrifice. So the question is, you know, you can understand how Luther is a little confused here because right here it says Abraham's justified by works, but then in verse 23, he's counted he's counted righteous because of his faith in God. So which is it? We understand why James, why Martin Luther might have been confused. So in 223 James agrees with the apostle Paul that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we become righteous. In fact, is you there's the the Latin, I think, is sola fide, uh, sola, uh, sola Christos, and, and uh, what's, what's the last one? By grace alone, uh, sola gratia. So those, it's, it's by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone that saves us. But in, in James 2, 23, he says a different kind of justification. That is our justification before men. So here's the thing that we need to get in our heads, and I'll, I'll go to proving these, what I'm about to tell you. What Paul is talking about is we're justified before God. That is, God blots our sins off of the heavenly record books when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. Why? Because I am put in Christ and Christ is in me. Now, imagine if you have an envelope and you write the word Robert on it and you write, you, it's a small envelope. You write Jesus, you put it in the envelope because Jesus is in Robert. But then you take that envelope that says Robert and you put it in another envelope that says Jesus again. And all you can see from the outside is, is the envelope that says Jesus. 
Interesting enough, for every one time in the New Testament that refers to Jesus being inside the Christian, it refers three times to the Christian being in Christ. When God looks at me, once I receive Jesus Christ, He sees me in Christ and He sees His Son as the perfect sacrifice who is offered for our sins, who knew no sin Himself and yet He became sin for us that He could take the penalty for my sins. And God looks at me through Christ-colored glasses. In other words, He doesn't see the sinner who can't be in heaven anymore. He sees Jesus Christ, His Son, who is worthy to sit on the throne. And because I am in him, I will be seated together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. So, but James is saying that there's another kind of justification, that's our justification before men. See, God has an advantage that we don't have. God can see our hearts. Now, that will either comfort you or scare the life out of you, depending on what's in your heart. But God sees our hearts, and we can be real religious on the outside, and we can be very righteous on the outside, we can be very forthright on the outside, and we can pull the wool over men's eyes rather easily because a lot of people are gullible, but God sees the heart. You'll never fool him. He knows every thought even before you think it, the Bible says. But how can we know that someone else who says, I am a Christian, or in this guy's case, I am a furniture maker, how can we know that we're really what they say they are. Well, obviously, if somebody says, I'm a furniture maker, the only way you can know that for real is to look at his what? Furniture. Look at the stuff he's made. If he's made furniture and it's sitting there in the shop and it's on its way to the market, yeah, that guy's a furniture maker. He didn't have any proof, as you saw in the video. If I am truly a born-again child of God and I receive Jesus as my Savior, it ought to change my behavior in such a way that you can look at my life and see there's something different. You ought to see something different in, in uh, my marriage, which is going on 41 years, and the pastor's marriage is going on 63 years, right? 63. He got married in 1950. Yeah, it's going on 64. My math's not good this morning. So going on 64 years. You ought to see a difference in the way uh, you treat your animals. The Bible says the, the righteous regardeth the life of his beast. Uh, you know, if you kick the dog before, you should quit kicking the dog after you receive Jesus as your Savior. Uh, you ought to see a difference in the way you relate to other people, a difference in the way you handle your finances, because now it's not just your money. You are a steward of the money that God entrusts you, and you're more responsible for it. And so you'd want to give some of it to missions and use some of it to help the poor and, and use some of it to use all of what's left to make sure that you do things that honor God, not things that dishonor God. It, it ought to just quite change our behavior. So James is saying, hey, listen, God is the only one to see our hearts, but men can't. But Jesus Christ coming into our hearts should transform us in such a way that there will be evidence enough to convict us of being a Christian. That there will be outward evidence that our lives have been changed. So... James believes in a faith that changes you. Some of you have heard me tell the story how I was pastoring a church in uh, East, uh, East Dallas um, around West Keys Boulevard, and I was uh, in a classroom, and when I got there, this church had had the same. Some of you may remember if you went to elementary school, they had these light fixtures that had uh, concentric rings up on top. So you'd have a ring and another ring and another ring, and in the middle was this big 300 watt incandescent bulb and you turn the thing on not only did it light up the classroom it heated up the classroom as well 
And uh, I, I got looking at the church electric bill, and I thought, you know, we can be better stewards if we will take down these 300-watt light bulbs and we'll put up fluorescent lights. Now, I did this before there were LED bulbs, or I'd have been putting up LEDs instead. Now, I have this thing that I try to take shortcuts, and that doesn't always, not always a good thing with electricity. And not fully understanding how wiring in the ceiling worked, I went and I flipped off the switch at the wall. And in my mind, if the switch is off, there should be no hot wires in the ceiling. That is wrong. I'm just telling you now, don't do what I did. I should have gone to the circuit breaker, found circuit breaker, flipped it off so there'd be no hot wires anywhere. But I thought, hey, the switch is off, so I'm, I climb up a metal ladder and I pull down the 300-watt light bulb in the fixture and I expose the, the wires that are there. Of course, I kept them separate. But at some point, as I'm putting up the new fluorescent light, uh, those wires made contact either with me or with the metal. At any rate, I got 122 volts of AC electricity surging through my body all of a sudden. And I need to tell you that, like this guy in the cartoon, it changed my behavior. Uh, I came down off of the uh, metal ladder rather quickly, uh, and I, I said Albuquerque, which for those of you who don't know, that was the word my mother taught me to use, so I wouldn't use one of those other words when I got mad or upset. And I said Albuquerque, and I came off the ladder because electricity changed my behavior. Now listen, if 120 volts of electricity can suddenly change your behavior, how in the world do you claim to have met Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God himself incarnate, and it not change you. People that, that go through the motions because their, their buddy walked the aisle during a revival or during a church camp and, and they, they ask Jesus in their heart and the kid thinks, well, if Johnny did it, I'm going to go do it too. And they come up and say the words and then years later, they're not in church. They're, they're living a life that's characterized by uh, slavery to sin, they they got habitual sins they can't conquer, and and over there's just no evidence of the fact that their life has been changed, because we can all say the right words, but words aren't enough, and this is going to be the point James makes through the rest of chapter two is that words are not enough. Now that doesn't mean that our works save us, but what he is saying is that if we have authentic faith, there will be evidence visible to men where we're justified before men. In other words, men can see the fact that we're justified. We're not just putting on an act. In other words, works authenticate our faith. Uh, in verse 14, in the, uh, it says, What good is it for a man to say, I have faith, if his actions do not prove it, can that faith save him? James is actually asking a rhetorical question, expecting a negative answer. In other words, if you say you have faith and it makes no difference, can that save you? Well, the answer, obviously, is no. If you have real faith, it ought to change you. It ought to change your family. Uh, it ought to change the way you live. Life should be different after that. The kind of faith that's content to utter pious phrases and ignore the destitute at the same time is really just dead. It's a faith that doesn't show any care, doesn't show any concern. It just says, I have faith. You warm a church pew, but it doesn't change your behavior. A genuine faith is one that's actively at work. Now, Paul said that the works of the law could not save a man. By the way, we're going to come back to this phrase in a minute. 
The works of the law refers to things like, as Brother Steve was talking about this morning in his Sunday school lesson, and the reason they had that whole council at Jerusalem is there were some people saying you had to do the works of the law. That is, you have to, if you're Gentile, you have to be circumcised. You have to keep Jewish religious traditions in order to become a Christian. So they were forcing Gentiles to first convert to Judaism before they could then come to the church. Now that's a work of the law. And the works of the law don't save. And Paul wanted people to know that. Keeping, you know, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. They're not Jews. They don't need to be circumcised. He wouldn't let uh, uh, Timothy be circumcised because Timothy uh, was, was with him. And Timothy, you know, came from at least partly from Gentiles. Uh, Paul would have someone who was, uh, you know, who did have Jewish heritage be circumcised if that was appropriate. Uh, so that he wouldn't hinder the, the spread of the gospel. But here's the thing. James says, James doesn't talk about works of the law. He talks about the works of faith. He's talking about the, the works you do because you have faith in Jesus Christ and love. Abraham's faith uh, that he's going to talk about and we'll get to next time uh, was not an empty profession, but it was a principle of action. Abraham took action based on his faith. Rahab we're going to read about next time. Uh, took action based on her faith. Uh, and just as Abraham showed his faith by the willingness to offer up Isaac, Rahab showed her faith by aiding the spies. And I'll have a lot more to say about that next time. So faith and works cannot exist separately and alone. Real faith will always be accompanied by works. Again, the works don't save you. The works just prove that your faith is the real deal. It's the authentication of your faith. So Paul and James dif differed in how they referred to works. Paul used works to refer to religious acts or works of the law that could never justify us before God. Uh, look at this from Titus 3.5 I already mentioned. Uh, he, he saved us not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. The so works of, of righteousness or deeds of righteousness. Here he's talking about the keeping of, of Jewish ceremonial laws. Uh, in Ephesians 2.9, uh, he says it's, it, salvation is not from works so that no one can boast. If, if you could get to heaven because you kept Jewish dietary law and you, you were circumcised on the appropriate uh, time of your life and, uh, or as an act of obedience after you had converted to Judaism uh, and if you kept the Jewish holidays and you kept the Jewish feast and you only ate kosher food for the rest of your life and then you got to heaven based on that, the problem is along the way you'd start bragging, I am going to make it because I'm doing a good job. I'm a good person. And interesting enough, there's a whole lot of people out there that believe they're going to heaven because they've been good. And usually if you'll pin these people down, I've only met one person in the last 40 years of ministry who told me that she had never sinned. And of course I pointed to her scripture in 1 John that says, if we say we have no sin, we are a liar. And I, I called the woman, I said, you're a liar. And, and here's why, the Bible says so. If you say you no sin, you're a liar. And she didn't like that. Uh, she wrote me a letter later, called me a milksop of a preacher. I saved that letter because I still laugh about being a milksop. Only time I've ever been called that term. But the reality is we've all sinned. But a, a lot of people have this idea. As long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'll go to heaven. And that, by the way, is what uh, Muslims believe. Muslims believe that Allah is going to look at the deeds they've done. As long as they have more good deeds than bad deeds, 
they'll make it uh, into their version of heaven and the men will get their 72 virgins and everything's going to be great from there on out. The problem with that is, how do you know your good outweighs the bad in the eyes of your God? God didn't want us to leave that to chance. So he said, no, it's not by work through righteousness that you've done, but it's according to my mercy that I'm going to save you. Uh, Now, look at the phrase that Paul uses with the Galatians. What was happening in Galatians is exactly what Brother Steve was talking about in his Sunday school morning lesson this morning because people called Judaizers had gone to Galatia and told these Gentile Christians, you have to convert to Judaism and you've got to keep the ceremonial laws before you can become a Christian. And Paul writes the Galatians and he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel of a different kind which is not just a gospel of the same kind, but totally different. He says, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. As I said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than what we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. And he goes on to to tell the Galatians, you know, he says this in chapter 3, for as many are as are of the works of the law are under curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. All right, so let's try this out, see how we pass this test. There is a, one of the big Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not steal. Now, you don't have to raise your hands. I'll raise mine for you. <laughs> how many of you have ever stolen something sometime in your life? Like I told you, I'm, I was seven years old, and I took some bubble gum from a store. My mother made me walk three, three blocks back to the store and apologize to the store manager, and she paid for the bubble gum that I'd stolen. That seems like a small thing, but it taught me early on, stealing's not okay. Uh, what about uh, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife? Have you ever lusted after somebody that, that you weren't married to? And if so, then what have you done? You have essentially committed adultery. Jesus says, if, if you even look after a woman to lust her, if you've committed adultery already in your heart. How many of you have ever told a lie? And I'm not just talking about on your tax forms, but any other day of the year besides April 15th. Whether you did it on April 15th or some other day, if you told a lie, what is it? It makes you a liar. How many lies do you have to tell to become a liar? Just one. How many times do you have to steal to become a thief? Just one. How many times do you have to commit mental adultery till in God's eyes you're an adulterer, just one. So by that standard, pretty much everybody that's sucking up oxygen and can fog up a mirror is a lying, thieving adulterer. See, none of us can keep the law perfect. That's our problem. And so Paul says, as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. If we try to keep the works of the law to earn our way in heaven, we'll always have the curse, and we're not getting to heaven with the curse. Uh, books have to be wiped clean at some point, and Jesus did that for us, but he's not going to force it on us. We have to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. So Paul uses works to talk about the works of the law, and these are things like uh, uh, circumcision, the keeping of ceremonies, and the giving of certain sacrifices, and it's uh, keeping the Jewish holidays and feast days. James uses works to refer to something different. He's referring to godly acts that show God's mercy toward other people, and they verify that we have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. James is concerned with works of mercy. Think about this. What did he start chapter 2 with? He started chapter 2 with that we should not treat rich people and poor people differently when they come to church. 
Jesus died for them both, and you don't show preference to the rich guy just because he can put more money in the offering plate than the poor person. They're both precious to Jesus, and that's why we have to treat them identically. And now he's saying, and he started out this passage, he says, if a brother or a sister comes in and they're destitute of food or clothes, they don't have adequate provisions for themselves. When he says a brother or sister, who is he talking about? He's talking about someone part of the Christian congregation. And if your brother or sister in Christ comes and you know that they have a need and you're not helping meet that need, you don't feel motivated to meet that need, when God is maybe tugging at your heart that you should do so, do you really have the love of Christ in you? Now, by the way, we, we have to be judicious in how we do this. Um, we've kind of always made our practice here that if there's money in the benevolence fund, we'll use that for people in the congregation whom we know uh, and very often people come in from outside that we don't know and they'll want some money. And I know from personal experience because I've worked in, in uh, mental hospitals for four years and I, I've uh, uh, been a pastor for something like 40 years and I've been, been bamboozled by the best of them. I will share the gospel with people that I don't know, but I don't give them money out of the church fund. I, if I have any cash in my pocket, I'll give it to them. Uh, to help them out because the, the reality is I know very often they're going to go buy drugs with it. I have on occasion just put a guy in my car, driven him down to Burger King and bought him two burgers while I was witnessing to him because at least that way I know my money went for something that, that could sustain his life and it didn't wind up going into a wine bottle later. I'm not saying that that's the goal of everyone, but there are people here in DFW that make their living going from churches to churches and they average about $600 a day income is the last statistic I saw. Because we, we're good people. We want to give out of, uh, out of concern for others. But, so we do need to use discernment. But here James is narrowing the case down. He's not talking about strangers. He's saying if a brother or sister who is known to you to be a Christian, he's part of the congregation, and he's destitute of food, what are you going to do? They're in financial assistance just for basic essentials. Now, by the way, we should help people have their basic needs supplied. It doesn't mean we have to help them buy a new Cadillac. Uh, that uh, because remember you, you can ask, James says in James 4, you ask and you ask amiss wanting to consume it upon your own lust. That's why God has an answer to some of you. We ask selfishly. Uh, so somebody wants new clothes, you, you know, if they don't have clothes, you might need to buy them some. And that might mean going down to uh, the, the thrift store. My girls are expert shoppers at the thrift store. They can find beautiful outfits and sometimes one of my daughters uh, Grace, she would go down to the thrift store, buy three things that were all, you know, secondhand, but she'd come home, disassemble, and make a whole new dress out of them. And it was amazing what she could, would do with those things. But he says, if you see someone, a brother or sister, and they have basic needs, then you helping meet those needs is evidence of that you love your brothers or sisters in Christ. And you want to help them. You're doing a work of mercy to help them meet their basic needs. And by the way, Jesus said... Uh, to his disciples, other men shall know you're my disciples by what? Your love for one another. How's the best way to demonstrate that? To help meet those basic needs. So meeting basic needs, sharing the gospel with people, that's a work of mercy. Providing life assistance to people when they can't do things for themselves, that's a work of mercy. Showing care and concern with more than just words, that's a work of mercy. So James means something much different than Paul when they see works. Paul was concerned about justification through Christ and wanted to make sure that we all understood we can't work 
our way to heaven. Now, by the way, this is the problem with a lot of modern religions today. Uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, even the Church of Christ, believe it or not, uh, they, they focus on sacraments or ceremonies that you have to do in order either to uh, earn your salvation or to keep it. I have a friend that is very faithful to the Church of Christ, and he and I had a lot of discussions. One time he, he asked me about this idea that Baptists have and that is a biblical concept that you can't lose your salvation. And he had a problem with that because he had a Sunday school teacher growing up who then left his wife and left the church and, and lived a life after that uh, that was not of a reprobate, basically. And he, he used that as proof uh, that you can lose your salvation. I said, well, to me, that might be proof that he never had it to begin with or that he's seriously backslidden and the Lord will deal with him. But the reality is uh, he, they believe that if you miss a Sunday uh, taking communion at the church, which they do every Sunday, and you sin during that week, which in my experience is a pretty common thing, that pretty hard to go seven days without blowing it somewhere, uh, that if you sin during the time and you, you miss communion, you have lost your salvation. You basically have to be saved again. Whereas the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 6 that were it possible for us to lose our salvation, we could never be saved again because Christ only died for us one time. See? And by the way, it says in Ecclesiastes 3.14 that whatever God does, He does forever that men should fear before Him. It says in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 that we are perfected forever by Christ Jesus. See, once He saved me, He didn't ever want me to be in a position where I could blow it and lose my salvation. So he keeps that salvation himself. That's why uh, Peter says we are kept by the power of God. The only way you can lose your salvation is for a power bigger than God to come along and take you out of God's hands. There isn't a bigger power. We can't be taken from God's hands. But uh, Greek Orthodox Church, for example, they say that if you uh, have a baby, and this is also true of Roman Catholics, if you have a baby and you baptize that baby... And, of course, baptism actually means immersion if you look at the meaning of the Greek word. But they sprinkle water on the head uh, and they, they, they do it as a sacrament. They actually state in their official doctrinal statements that that child needs never repent. It needs never do anything else because it's been baptized. Salvation's been conferred on the child by the sacrament of baptism. But in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, Jesus said, Unless they repent, they shall all likewise perish. Two verses later in Luke 13 and verse 5, he says, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The fact of the matter is, the only way we can be saved is not anything that a church does for us. We have to repent of our sins and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. By the way, it's not just enough to believe either. You have to receive. In John 1.12 it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I often take little kids and show them a dollar bill, and, and uh, I said, do you believe this is a dollar bill? And they look at it, and, yeah, that's a dollar bill. I said, look at it really close, and they, they look at it even closer. They think I'm trying to trick them, and then finally say, well, yeah, that's a real dollar bill. And then I put it back in my pocket and say, okay, I want you to go down to Dairy Queen and buy an ice cream cone with that dollar bill. And they look at me like I'm crazy because the problem is the dollar bill is still in my pocket. And then I explain to them, it's the same deal with Jesus. It's not enough to just believe that he's the son of God, to believe that he died for your sins and believe that he rose again, you have to receive him. You have to ask him to be your Lord and Savior. He doesn't do you any good. And very often kids understand that. They get saved. I give them the dollar bill after that. That's a good way to lose a dollar, by the way. But the point is, 
Sacraments don't save us. It's strictly by grace. This what Paul wants to drill into our heads. It's not by religious ceremonies that we're going to have problems. It's no religious observance, no ritual. And for grace to be grace, it has to be all God. So the reality is, is that our faith is on trial. When we say we're a Christian, just like this guy said, I'm a furniture maker, and somewhere during the interview, the guy who's interviewing puts his furniture-making skills on trial to find out what kind of furniture he makes, and there was none. Our faith is on trial so that when you say we're a Christian, people want to look at us and see if there's anything different about us. Because if we're not different from the world, we're no longer relevant to it. The only way we can be, have a relevant message is if Jesus is really doing something for us. Now, God doesn't have to try our faith because he sees our hearts. But how do people know? They look for the evidence. They want to see something that's different. And is there enough evidence to convict us of being a Christian? Now, what evidence do we have to show that it's real? So here's the central issue. In chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, If a man says he has faith, but there's no outward evidence of it, is it really saving faith? And, of course, the answer is no. Now, James is not saying, by the way, that works are part of getting us to heaven or that works are essential to getting us to heaven. What he's saying is that if you have the kind of faith that really gets you to heaven because you've had a real relationship with Jesus Christ, then your works give evidence of the fact you have that true saving faith. Uh, real faith produces a change in our behavior as a part of its character. We do works of mercy. And uh, we, we know the Pharisees did a lot of good things. They did a lot of good religious things. Uh, they tithed to their mint, anise, and cumin. And yet they weren't going to heaven because they didn't have uh, any faith in Jesus Christ along with the words of law. The problem is, is that words just simply are, are not enough. So if you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you'll demonstrate these acts of mercy toward others. Uh, the Bible actually tells us that God will not show mercy in judgment to those who have been unmerciful. He gave a parable about that, about a, a king that had forgiven a great debt, and this man didn't go on and forgive the great debt, and later the king throws that man back in prison uh, because he has not demonstrated mercy. He was not truly penitent of the fact that he had taken a debt that he couldn't pay. So the reality is faith without deeds just tells you that your faith isn't real, and deeds aren't part of producing a salvation, but they are the demonstration that we are the real deal. Now, James gives us a few things, and he gives us an example of a need without a deed. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking food for the day, and one of you should say to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat well. Now, let me stop right there. It was normal to say, go in peace. Anytime two Jews or any two people met in the ancient world, a traditional uh, way of signing off when people were leaving, you would say, go in peace. That was, that was just normal, good manners. Go in peace. It, you know, there, it's like, uh, in, you know, in more modern times we've said, Godspeed, or now we say, have a good day, but we say something like that to wish that person well as you're leaving us. So that's a normal thing. But now James says that they're going a step beyond this. They're also saying, be warm and eat well. Now, why would you say that? Because this person is aware of the fact that this person's cold because they don't have adequate clothing and that they are hungry and starving because they don't have adequate food. He says, but, he says, if you say keep warm and eat well, but you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what is the benefit? 
what good does it do? I mean, are they actually going to feel warm and feel full just because you've said the words to them? No, you've got to do something to help. Uh, now, James is not the only Bible writer to talk about this. In John, John says this, But whoever has the world's material possession and observes his brother, this is someone else in Christ that they know to be in Christ, his brother in need, and shuts his heart against him, how does the love of God reside in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In other words, real love does something. Love is an action. Uh, one of the things I try to get across, because I've counseled a lot of marriages in the last 40 years, is people say, well, I don't, I, and I've had people that have been married 25 years before, and they say, well, I just don't love my husband anymore. And I point out, love's not a feeling, it's an action. You, you by an act of your will, demonstrate kindness and consideration to meet the needs of the others, and the feeling will follow. Feeling follows action. It shouldn't dictate your action. You should do the, the action first and then get the feeling. So to a person in misery, James' fellow believers sometimes apparently were just saying, have a nice day. Uh, and again, it's this, it's this, in a relationship between the people who have and the people who don't have, the needy person is given the gift and the accompanying verbal blessing without begrudging them a gift, without finding fault, you just give them uh, what they need, and you don't look at it. Now, what about Jesus? <laughs> There's a parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, and he addressed the same issue because saying be warm and be filled doesn't really help. So what did Jesus say about it? Well, he would agree with us that words are never enough. The poor need more than words. You need more than words to fill your belly. You need more than words to clothe your body. And uh, so the believer who needs this saving act and wisdom of God, if God had just said, be well, and he didn't put Jesus on the cross to die for our sins, where would we all be? We'd be bound for an eternity in the lake of fire because he didn't provide that help for us. In the same way, we're supposed to help and not just wish a blessing. So a word of blessing without an act of blessing is like the promise of salvation without Christ dying for us on the cross, and it would be in vain if that happened. So listen, listen to what Jesus says. Now when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He'll place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So these are the people that are going to heaven. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me as a guest. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now what's interesting is nowhere in here does he says because you asked me into your heart. What, because even... The ungodly can say the words. James, what Jesus is saying is, you had a relationship with me and it showed in what you do. He's not saying the works save them. It shows that they have genuine faith. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you as a guest or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I send to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these of my brethren, you did it unto me. Then he will say to those on his left, these are the goats, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you did not give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, you did not give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me as a guest. 
Naked you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison you did not care for me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not serve you? And he'll say, truly I send you. And as much as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these will depart into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. What's Jesus' point? If you had real faith... It showed in the way you live. If you had fake faith, because remember he's talking primarily to a Jewish audience who kept Jewish laws and did the works of the law, and you didn't do these acts of mercy or acts of love to show that the love of God was inside your heart, then you're not the real deal. You're not a Christian. So what James is saying is not anything that his half-brother Jesus hadn't already said. You see, God condemns a faith that's based on ritual but isn't backed by a change of life. They agree. See, real faith works. Real faith shows. Real faith uh, works naturally. It's not forced to do to works to impress others or out of some sense of religious obligation. It simply lets the love of Christ shine through their life. Now, James is going to give tell us there are three kinds of faith. And this is the big takeaway today, so you might, might want to jot these three kinds of faith down. First of all, there's dead faith. What is dead faith? He says, thus also faith, if it does not have works, is dead being by itself. So what is dead faith? It's a faith that merely assents to the mental facts of the gospel. You've heard the plan of salvation. You say, yes, Jesus is God's son. Yes, he died from our sins. Yes, he rose from the dead. But that's as far as it goes. You just believe it. You believe the right things, but you haven't done anything with it. That's dead faith. And it's faith that it doesn't have a change in behavior. It's faith that doesn't result in pursuing acts of mercy. Now, when I was growing up, I watched a, a highly theologically correct show called Hee Haw. Most of you are too young to remember Hee Haw, but this was... In fact, is it got a lot of bad reviews from critics, and yet it ended up being one of the most popular shows because people enjoyed just a bunch of country bumpkins being silly. And there was this colonel on the show, and he did a lot of different things, but every now and then he would come on and he would say, you show me this, and he says, and I'll show you that. And we still use this format today. For example, here's a fellow by the name of Jack McDuitt. He says, show me what a people admire and I'll tell you everything about them that matters. That's actually a pretty astute statement. You show me what you admire, I can show you what's important to you. I can learn a lot about you. Uh, Margaret Atwood, who's an author, says, show me a character totally without anxieties, and I'll show you a boring book. Uh, Vladimir Lenin, <laughs> hey, you know, uh, one of the big people in communism, he said this, show me who your friends are, and I'll tell you what you are. That's a pretty astute observation by a godless atheist communist. Uh, you can tell a lot about people by who their friends are. Barbara Walters, you may remember her, ABC News for years, did interviews with famous personalities. She says, show me someone who never gossips, and I'll show you someone who's not interested in people. Uh, that scares me just a little bit. And President Theodore Roosevelt, show me a man who makes no mistakes, and I'll show you a man who doesn't do a thing. <laughs> That's the very true. You know, you don't make mistakes if you don't do anything. See, there's a big difference between showing and saying, and G James knows that you cannot see the heart of a person, but you can show the heart of a person by what the actions of that person are. And so James says, you say you have faith, now show me that faith without works. And the reality is you can't do that. You can't show your faith without works. You can talk about it, 
You can flap your lips till you create a big breeze, but nothing else happens. He says, but I'll show you my faith by my works. James is making the point, it's not works that save you, but my works should give evidence of the fact that there's faith. They demonstrate the authenticity of my faith. Now, James says there's a second kind of faith. This is demonic faith. He says, uh, you say that you believe, you do well, but even the demons believe and they tremble. So in other words, he says demons know who Jesus is. Not only that, they have an emotional reaction. You remember when Jesus came to the guy that had a legion of demons in him and, and they, they, they cry out to him, don't come near us, don't come near us, and you know, give us some other place to go. And he says, okay, you can go into the pigs. And the pigs rushed off the cliff once the demons invaded their bodies. Uh, demons had an emotional reaction to Jesus. But obviously they were never saved. And there are people who mentally assent to the facts of the gospel and they're even emotionally stirred because maybe the music or maybe the emotions or maybe little Johnny going forward stirs up in something in them. But still they lack something. They've had an emotional stirring and an intellectual understanding but they haven't received Jesus Christ by an act of your will. You can't just believe them. You have to receive them and you have to repent. And then there is a dynamic saving faith. He says, but do you want to know, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James basically says, you're an empty-headed fool if you believe that words are enough or that sacramental or religious procedures and ceremonies are enough. What does true dynamic faith involve? It does assent to the facts of the gospel intellectually. It does produce an emotional stirring in our heart that we need to do something. We should sorrow over our sin. But then our will, our volition gets involved. And we, by an act of our will, receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then that transforms us. It changes us in such a way that it changes our behavior, changes the way we respond to others, changes the way we live, changes the way we have a stewardship of things. So next time, we're going to look at two witnesses in court to basically have to prove their relationship to God. And we're going to look at Abraham and Rahab, two very different people, a, a Gentile and a Jew, a harlot, and uh, the father of the Jewish people. So here's how I close as Brother Steve leads us in a song. Are you the real deal? It's one thing for us to warm a pew and say we're a Christian, but has Jesus Christ changed us? My behavior changed when I got zapped by 120 volts of electricity on top of a metal ladder but God really changed me when he came into my heart and he saved me. I remember where I was. I remember asking Jesus into my heart. And I have not been perfect since then by any stretch of the imagination. But my orientation has been different ever since. And I could not have the life that I have now without Jesus Christ. Do I do acts of mercy? Do we share the gospel with others? Do we, do we give to support missions? Do we demonstrate genuine care and concern for others? Do we perform acts of kindness that demonstrate the love of Christ to others or are we just going through the motions? Uh, Brother Steve's going to come and lead us in a song and uh, I want to be faithful, number three tells. So you open your hymnals there and we'll sing together. <laughs>